0: You're listening to Allen, Oleander Public Radio. Astounding Stories 16, April, 1931, by Various. The World Behind the Moon, Part 1. Like pitiless jaws, a distant crater opened for their ship. Helplessly, they hurtled toward it. Helplessly, because they were still in the nothingness of space no atmospheric resistance on which their rudders, or stern or bow tubes, could get a purchase to steer them. Professor Dornwicher waited anxiously for the slight vibration that should announce that the projectile-shaped shell had entered the new planet's atmosphere. "'Have we struck it yet?' asked Joyce, a tall, blond young man, with the shoulders of an athlete, and the broad brow and square chin of one who combines dreams with action." he made his way painfully toward Witcher. It was the first time he had attempted to move since the shell had passed the neutral point. That belt, midway between the moon and the world behind it, where the pull of gravity of each satellite was neutralized by the other. They, and all the loose objects in the shell, had floated uncomfortably about the middle of the chamber for half an hour or so, gradually settling down again. Until now it was possible, with care, to walk, "'Have we struck it?' he repeated, leaning over the professor's shoulder and staring at the resistance gauge. "'No,' absently Witcher took off his spectacles and polished them. "'There's not a trace of resistance yet.' They gazed out the bow window toward the vast disk, like a serrated, pot-marked plate of blue ice that was the planet Zoid, discovered and named by them. The same thought was in the mind of each— Suppose there was no atmosphere surrounding Zoid to cushion their descent into the hundred-mile crater that yawned to receive them. Well, said Joyce after a time, we're taking no more of a chance here than we did when we pointed our nose toward the moon. We were almost sure there there was no atmosphere there, which meant we'd nose-dive into the rocks at five thousand miles an hour. On Zoid there might be anything. His eyes shone how wonderful that there should be such a planet unsuspected during all the centuries men have been studying the heavens witcher nodded agreement it was wonderful indeed but what was more wonderful was its present discovery for that would never have transpired had not he and joyce succeeded in their attempt to fly to the moon from there after following the sun in its slow journey around to the lost side of the lunar globe that face which the earth had never yet observed. They had seen shining in the near distance the great ball which they had christened Zoid. Astronomical calculations had soon described the mysterious hidden satellite. It was almost a twin to the moon, a very little smaller, and less than 80,000 miles away. Its rotation was nearly similar, which made its days not quite 16 of our earthly days. It was approximately the weight per cubic mile, of earth, and there it whirled directly in line with the earth and the moon, moving as the moon moved so that it was ever out of sight beyond it, as a dime would be out of sight if placed in a direct line behind a penny. Zoid, the new satellite, the world beyond the moon. In their excitement at its discovery, Joyce and Witcher had left the moon, which they had found to be as dead and cold as it had been surmised to be, and returned summarily to earth they had replenished their supplies and their oxygen tanks and had come back to circle around the moon and point the sharp prow of the shell toward Zoid. the gift of the moon to earth was a dubious one but the gift of a possibly living planet colony to mankind might be the solution of the overcrowded conditions of the terrestrial sphere speed three thousand miles an hour computed Witcher distance to Zoid nine hundred and eighty miles. If we don't strike a few atoms of hydrogen or something soon, we're going to drill this nearest crater a little deeper. Joyce nodded grimly. At two thousand miles from the earth, there had still been enough hydrogen traces in the ether to give purchase to the explosions of their water motor. At six hundred miles from the moon— they had run into a sparse gaseous belt that had enabled them to change direction and slow their speed. They had hoped to find hydrogen at a thousand or twelve hundred miles from Zoid, eight hundred and thirty miles commented Witcher, his slender, bent body tensed eight hundred miles. Ah, a thrumming sound came to their ears as the shell quivered imperceptibly almost but unmistakably. At the touch of some faint resistance outside in space. We've struck it, Joyce, and it's much denser than the moon's, even as we'd hoped. There'll be life on Zoid, my boy, unless I'm vastly mistaken. You'd better look to the motor now. Joyce went to the water motor. This was a curious but extremely simple affair. There was a glass box ribbed with polished steel about the size and shape of a cigar box which was full of water leading away from this to the bow and stern of the shell were two small pipes the pipes were greatly thickened for a period of three feet or so directly under the little tank and were braced by bed plates so heavy as to look all out of proportion around the thickened parts of the pipes were coils of heavy insulated copper wire there were no valves or cylinders no revolving parts That was all there was to the motor. Joyce didn't yet understand the device. The water dripped from the tank, drop by drop, to be abruptly disintegrated, made into an explosive by being subjected to a powerful magnetic field induced in the coils by a generator in the bow of the shell. As each drop of the water passed into the pipes, and was instantaneously broken up, there was a violent but controlled explosion, and the shell was kicked another hundred miles ahead on its journey. That was all Joyce knew about it. When he threw the bow switch, there was a soft shock as the motor exhausted through the forward tube, slowing their speed. "'Turn on the outside propeller generators,' ordered Witcher. "'I think our batteries are getting low.' joyce slipped the tiny slim bladed propellers into gear they began to turn slowly at first in the almost non-existent atmosphere four hundred miles announced witcher how's the temperature joyce stepped to the thermometer that registered the heat of the outer wall nine hundred degrees he said cut down to a thousand miles an hour commanded witcher five hundred as soon as the motor will catch that much i'll keep our course straight toward this crater it's in wells like that that we'll find livable air if we're right in believing there is such a thing on zoid joyce glanced at the thermometer it still registered hundreds of degrees though their speed had been materially reduced i guess it's livable air all right he said it's pretty thick outside already the professor smiled another theory vindicated I was sure that Zoid, swinging on the outside of the Earth-Moon-Zoid chain, and hence traveling at a faster rate, would pick up most of the Moon's atmosphere over a period of millions of years. Also, it must have been shielded by the Moon, to some extent, against the constant small atmospheric leakage most celestial objects are subject to. Just the same, when we land, we'll test conditions with a rat or two. At a signal from him, joyce checked their speed to four hundred miles an hour then to two hundred and then as they descended below the highest rim of the circular cliffs of the crater almost to a full stop they floated toward the surface of zoid watching with breathless interest the panorama that unfolded beneath them they were nosing toward a spot that was being favored with the zoidian sunrise sharp and clear the light rays slanted down illuminating about half the crater's floor and leaving the cliff protected half in dim shadow the illuminated part of the giant pit was as bizarre as the landscape of a nightmare there were purplish trees immense beyond belief there were broad smooth pools of inky black fluid that was oily and troubled in spots as though disturbed by some moving things under the surface there were bare rocky patches where the stones the long drippings of ancient lava flow were spread like bleaching grey skeletons of monsters, and over all, rising from the pools and bare ground and jungle alight, was a thin, miasmic mist. Sustained by the slow, steady exhaust of the motor, rising a little with each partly muffled explosion, and sinking a little further in each interval, they settled toward a bare, lava-strewn spot that appealed to Witcher as being a good landing-place with a last hiss and a grinding jar they grounded joyce opened the switch to cut off the generator now let's see what the air's like said witcher lifting down a small cage in which was penned an active rat he opened the double panel in the shell's hull and freed the little animal in an agony of suspense they watched as it leapt onto the bare lava and halted a moment seems to like it said joyce drawing a great breath the rat, as though intoxicated by its sudden freedom, raced away out of sight, covering eight or ten feet at a bound, its legs scurrying ludicrously in empty air during its short flights. "'That means that we can dispense with oxygen helmets, and that we'd better take our guns,' said Witcher, his tone tense, his eyes snapping behind his glasses. He stepped to the gun-rack, and this were half a dozen air-guns, long and a very small bore they discharged a tiny steel shell in which was a liquid of his invention that about a second after the heat of its forced passage through the rifle barrel expanded instantly in a gaseous form to millions of times its liquid bulk it was the most powerful explosive yet found but one that was beautifully safe to carry inasmuch as it could be exploded only by heat are we ready he said, handing a gun to Joyce, "'Then let's go!' But for a breath or two they hesitated before opening the heavy double door in the side of the hull, savouring to the full the immensity of the moment. The rapture of the explorer, who was the first to set foot on a vast new continent, was theirs, magnified a hundredfold, for they were the first to set foot on a vast new planet.' An entire new world, containing heaven alone, knew what forms of life, what monstrous or infinitesimal creatures lay before them. Even the profound awe that they had experienced when landing on the moon was dwarfed by the solemnity of this occasion, just as it is less soul-stirring to discover an arctic continent which is perpetually cased in barren ice than to discover a continent which is warmly fruitful and probably teeming with life still wordless too stirred to speak they opened the vault-like door and stepped out into a humid heat which was like that of their own tropical regions but not so unendurable in their short stay on the moon during which they had taken several walks in their insulated suits they had become somewhat accustomed to the decreased weight of their bodies due to the lesser gravity so that here where their weight was even less they did not make any blunders of stepping twenty feet instead of a yard walking warily glancing alertly in all directions to guard against any strange animals that might rush out to destroy them they moved toward the nearest stretch of jungle the first thing that arrested their attention was the size of the trees they were approaching they had got some idea of their hugeness from the shell but viewed from ground level they loomed even larger Eight hundred, a thousand feet they reared their mighty tops, with trunks hundreds of feet in circumference, living pyramids whose bases wove together to make an impenetrable ceiling over the jungle floor. The leaves were thick and bloated like cactus growths, and their color was a pronounced lavender. "'We must take back several of those leaves,' said Witcher, his scientific soul filled with cold excitement i wish we could take back some of this air too joyce filled his lungs to capacity isn't it great it's like wine it almost counteracts the effects of the heat there's more oxygen in it than in our own surmised witcher my god what's that they halted for an instant from the depths of the lavender jungle had come an ear-shattering screaming hiss as though some monstrous serpent were in its death agony they waited to hear if the noise would be repeated. It wasn't. Dubiously they started on again. "'We'd better not go in there too far,' said Joyce. "'If we didn't come out again, it would cost Earth a new planet. No one else knows the secret of your water motor.' "'Oh, nothing living can stand against these guns of ours,' replied Witcher confidently. "'And that noise might not have been caused by anything living. It might have been steam escaping from some volcanic crevice.' they started cautiously down a well-defined hard-packed trail through thorny lavender underbrush as they went joyce blazed marks on various tree trunks marking the direction back to the shell the tough fibres exuded a bluish liquid from the cuts that blubbered slowly like blood to the right and left of them were cup-shaped bushes that looked like traps and that their looks were not being deceived was proved by a muffled, bleeding cry that rose from the compressed leaves of one of them they passed. Sluggish, blind-crawling things, like three-foot slugs, flowed across their path and among the tree trunks, leaving viscous trails of slime behind them, and there were larger things. "'Careful,' said Witcher, suddenly, coming to a halt and peering into the gloom at their right." "'What did you see?' whispered Joyce. Witcher shook his head. The gigantic, two-legged, purplish figure he had dimly made out in the steamy dark had moved away. I don't know. It looked a little like a giant ape. They halted and took stock of their situation, mechanically wiping perspiration from their streaming faces and pondering as to whether or not they should turn back. Joyce, who was far from being a coward, they should. In this undergrowth, he pointed out, we might be rushed before we could even fire our guns, and we're nearly a mile from the shell. But Witcher was like an eager child. We'll press on just a little, he urged, to that clear spot in front of us. He pointed along the trail to where sunlight was blazing down through an opening in the trees. As soon as we see what's there, we'll go back. With a shrug, Joyce followed the little eager man down the weird trail, under the lavender trees. In a few moments they had reached a clearing which was Witcher's goal. They halted on its edge, gazing at it with awe and repulsion. It was a circular quagmire, a festering black mud about a hundred yards across. Near at hand they could see the mud heaving, very slowly, as though abysmal forms of life were tunneling along just under the surface. They glanced toward the center of the bog which was occupied by one of the smooth black pools and cried aloud at what they saw at the brink of the pool was lying a gigantic creature like a great thick snake a snake with a lizard's head and a series of many jointed scaled legs running down its powerful length its mouth was gaping open to reveal hundreds of needle sharp backward pointing teeth its legs and thick stubbed tail were threshing feebly in the mud as though it were in distress, and its eyes, so small as to be invisible in its repulsive head, were glazed and dull. "'Was that what we heard back aways? wondered Joyce. "'Probably,' said Witcher. His eyes shone as he gazed at the nightmare shape. Impulsively he took a step toward the stirring mud. "'Don't be entirely insane,' snapped Joyce, catching his arm. "'I must see it closer,' said Witcher, tugging to be free.' And we'll climb a tree and look down on it. We'll probably be safer up off the ground, anyway. They ascended the nearest jungle giant, whose rubbery bark was so ringed and scored as to be as easy to climb as a staircase, to the first great bough about fifty feet from the ground and edged out till they hung over the rim of the quagmire. From there, with the aid of their binoculars, they expected to see the dying monster in every detail. "'but when they looked toward the pool, it was not in sight.' "'Were we seeing things?' exclaimed witcher, rubbing his glasses. "'I'd have sworn it was lying there.' "'It was,' said Joyce grimly. "'Look at the pool. That'll tell you where it went.' The black, secretive surface was bubbling, and waving as though, down in its depth, a terrific fight were taking place. "'Something came up, and dragged our ten-legged lizard down to its den. "'Then that something's brothers got on to the fact that a feast was being held and rushed in. That pool would be no place for a before-breakfast dip. End of Part 1 Astounding Stories 16 April, 1931, by Various The World Behind the Moon, Part 2 Witcher started to say something in reply, then gazed, hypnotized, at the opposite wall of the jungle, From the dense screen of lavender foliage stretched a glistening scale-armoured neck, as thick as a man's body at its thinnest point, which was just behind a tremendous-jawed crocodilian head. It tapered back for a distance of at least thirty feet to merge into a body as big as that of a terrestrial whale, that was supported by four squat, ponderous legs moving with surprising rapidity the enormous thing slid into the mud and began ploughing away belly deep through the pool shapeless slow writhing forms were cast up in its wake to quiver for a moment in the sunlight and then melt below the mud again one of the bloated formless mud crawlers was snapped up in the huge jaws with an abrupt plunge of the long neck and the monster began to feed hog-like slobbering over the loathsome carcass witcher shook his head half in fanatical eagerness half in despair i'd like to stay and see more he said with a sigh but if that's the kind of creatures we're apt to encounter in the Zoidian jungle we'd better be going at once shh snapped joyce then in a barely audible whisper i think the thing heard your voice the monster had abruptly ceased its feeding its head was waving inquisitively from side to side suddenly it expelled the air from its vast lungs in a roaring cough and started directly for their tree shoot cried Witcher, raising his gun moving with the speed of an express train the monster had almost got to their overhanging branch before they could pull the triggers both shells embedded themselves in the enormous chest just as the long neck reached up for them and at once things began to happen with cataclysmic rapidity. Almost with their impact the shells exploded. The monster stopped, with a great hole torn in its body. Then, dying on its feet, it thrust its great head up, and its huge jaws crouched over the branch to which its two puny destroyers were clinging. With all of its dozens of tons of weight, it jerked in a gargantuan death agony. The tree, enormous as it was, shook with it, and the branch itself was tossed as though in a hurricane. There was a splintering sound. Witcher and Joyce dropped their guns to cling more tightly to the bowl of the drooping branch that was their only security. The guns glanced off the mountainous body and, with the last convulsion of the mighty legs, were swept underneath. The monster was still at last, its insensate jaws yet gripping the bow. The two men looked at each other in speechless consternation the shell a mile off through the dreadful jungle themselves helpless without their guns well said joyce at last i guess we'd better be on our way waiting here thinking it over won't help any luckily there's no night for a couple of weeks at least to come stealing down on us he started down the great trunk with witcher following close behind Walking as rapidly as they could, they hurried back along the tunneled trail toward their shell. They hadn't covered a hundred yards when they heard a mighty crashing of underbrush behind them. Glancing back, they saw tooth-studded jaws gaping cavernously out of the end of a thirty-foot neck, little dead-looking eyes glaring at them, a hundred-foot body smashing its way over the trap bushes and through tangles of vines and down-drooping branches the mate to the thing we killed back there joyce panted run for god's sake witcher needed no urging he hadn't an ounce of fear in his spare small body but he had an overwhelming desire to get back to earth and deliver his message he was trembling as he raced after joyce thirty feet to a bound ducking his head to avoid hitting the thick lavender foliage that roofed the trail one of us must get through he panted over and over one of us must make it.' It was speedily apparent that they could never outrun their pursuer. The reaching jaws were only a few yards behind them now. "'You go,' called Joyce, sobbing for breath. He slowed his pace, deliberately. "'No, you!' Witcher slowed, too. In a frenzy, Joyce shoved him along the trail. "'I tell you!' He got no further. In front of him—' Where there had appeared to be solid ground, they suddenly saw a yawning pit. Desperately they tried to veer aside, but they were too close. Their last long, bird-like leap carried them over the edge. They fell, far down, into a deep chasm, splashing into a shallow pool of water. A few clods of earth cascaded after them as the monster above dug its great splayed feet into the ground and checked its rush in time to keep from falling after them. Then the top of the pit slowly darkened as a covering of some sort slid across it. They were in a prison as profoundly quiet and utterly black as a tomb. "'Dorn!' shouted Joyce. "'Are you all right?' "'Yes,' came a voice in the near darkness. "'And you?' "'I'm still in one piece, as far as I can feel.' There was a splashing noise. He waded toward it, and in a moment his outstretched hand touched the professor's shoulder." "'This is a fine mess,' he observed shakily. "'We got away from those tooth-lined jaws all right, "'but I'm wondering if we're much better off "'than we would have been if we hadn't escaped.' "'I'm wondering the same thing.' "'Witcher's voice was strained. "'Did you see the way the top of the pit closed above us? "'That means we're in a trap, "'and a most ingenious trap it is, too. "'The roof of it is camouflaged "'until it looks exactly like the rest of the trail floor.' The water in here is just shallow enough to let large animals break their necks when they fall in and just deep enough to preserve small animals like ourselves alive we're in the hands of some sort of reasoning intelligent beings joyce in that case said joyce with a shudder we'd better do our best to get out of here but this was found to be impossible they couldn't climb up out of the pit and nowhere could they feel any openings in the walls Only smooth, impenetrable stone met their questing fingers. "'It looks as though we're in to stay,' said Joyce, finally. "'At least until our Zoidian hosts, whatever kind of creatures they may be, come and take us out. What'll we do then? Sail in and die fighting? Or go peaceably along with them, assuming we aren't killed at once, on the chance that we can make a break later?' "'I devise the latter,' answered Richard. There's a small animal on our own planet whose example might be a good one for us to follow. That's the possum. He stopped abruptly and gripped Joyce's arm. From the opposite side of the pit came a grating sound. A crack of greenish light appeared, low down near the water. This widened jerkily, as though a door were being hoisted by some sort of pulley arrangement. The walls of the pit began to glow faintly with reflected light. Down! breathed witcher. Noiselessly, they let themselves sink into the water until they were floating, eyes closed and motionless on the surface. Playing dead to the best of their ability, they waited for what might happen next. They heard a splashing near the open rock door. The splashing neared them, and high-pitched hissing syllables came to their ears, variegated sounds that resembled excited conversation in some unknown language. Joyce felt himself touched by something, and it was all he could do to keep from shouting aloud and springing to his feet at the contact. He'd had no idea, of course, what might be the nature of their captors, but he had imagined them as manlike, to some extent at least, and the touch of his hand, or flipper, or whatever it was, indicated that they were not. They were cold-blooded reptilian things, for the flesh that had touched him was cold as clammy and repulsive as the belly of a dead fish. So repulsive was that flesh that, when he presently felt himself lifted high up and roughly carried, he shuddered in spite of himself at the contact. Instantly the thing that bore him stopped. Joyce held his breath. He felt an excruciating stabbing pain in his arm, after which the journey through the water was resumed. Stubbornly, He kept up his pretense of lifelessness. The splashing ceased, and he heard flat, wet feet slapping along on dry rock, indicating that they had emerged from the pit. Then he sank into real unconsciousness. The next thing he knew was that he was lying on a smooth, bare rock in a perfect bedlam of noises. Howls and grunts, snuffling coughs and snarls beat at his eardrums. IT WAS THOUGH HE HAD FALLEN INTO A VAST CAGE IN WHICH WERE HUNDREDS OF SAVAGE, EXCITED ANIMALS, ANIMALS, HOWEVER, THAT IN SPITE OF THEIR EXCITEMENT AND FEROCITY, WERE SURPRISINGLY MOTIONLESS, FOR HE HEARD NO SCRAPING OF CLAWS OR PATTING OF FEET. CAUTIOUSLY, HE OPENED HIS EYES. HE WAS IN A LARGE CAVE, THE WALLS OF WHICH WERE GLOWING WITH GREENISH, PHOSPHORESCENT LIGHT. STREWN ABOUT THE FLOOR WERE SEEMINGLY DEAD carcasses OF ANIMALS. "'and what carcasses they were, "'blubber-coated things that looked like giant tadpoles, "'gazelle-like creatures with a single, long, slim horn "'growing from delicate, small skulls, 4 legged beasts and six-legged ones, "'animals with furry hides and crawlers with scaled coverings, "'several hundred assorted specimens of the smaller life of Zoid "'lay stretched out in seeming lifelessness. "'But they were not dead.' These bizarre beasts of another world, they lived, and were animated with the frenzied fear of trapped things. Joyce could see the tortured heaving of their furred and scaled sides as they panted with terror, and from their throats issued the outlandish noises he had heard. They were alive enough, only they seemed unable to move. There was nothing in his range of vision that might conceivably be the beings that had captured him. So Joyce started to lift his head and look around at the rest of the cavern. He found that he could not move. He tried again, and his body was as unresponsive as a log. In fact, he couldn't feel his body at all. In growing terror, he concentrated all his will on moving his arm. It was as limp as a rag. He relaxed, momentarily in the grip of stark blind panic. He was as helpless as the howling things around him. "'He was numbed, completely paralyzed into immobility. "'The professor's voice, a weak, uncertain voice, "'sounded from behind him. "'Joyce! Joyce!' "'He found that he could talk, "'and the paralysis that gripped the rest of his muscles "'had not extended to the vocal cords. "'Dorn! Thank God you're alive! "'I couldn't see you, and I thought—' "'I'm alive, but that's about all,' said Witcher. "I, "'I can't move.' Neither can I. We've been drugged in some manner, just as all the other animals in here have been drugged. I must have gotten my dose in the pit. I was cut, or stabbed, in the arm. Joyce stopped talking as he suddenly heard steps. Like human footsteps, yet weirdly different, flap-flapping sounds, as though awkward flippers were slapping along the rock floor toward them. The steps stopped within a few feet of them, then— after what seemed hours they sounded again this time in front of him he opened his eyes cautiously barely moving his eyelids and saw at last in every hideous detail one of the super beasts that had captured witcher and himself it was a horrible cartoon of a man the thing that stood there in the greenish glow of the cave nine or ten feet high it loomed hairless with a faintly iridescent purplish hide A thick cylindrical trunk sloped into a neck only a little smaller than the body itself. Set on this was a bony, ugly head that was split clear across by lipless jaws. There was no nose, only slanted holes like the nostrils of an animal. And over these were set pale, expressionless, pupilless eyes. The arms were short and thick, and ended in bifurcated limbs of flesh like swollen hands encased in old-fashioned mittens. The legs were also grotesquely short, and the feet were mere shapeless flaps. It was standing near one of the smaller animals, apparently regarding it closely. Observing it himself, Joyce saw that it was moving a little, as though coming out of a coma. It was raising its bizarre head and trying to get on its feet. Leisurely, the two-legged monster bent over, two long fangs gleamed in the lipless mouth. These were buried into the neck of the reviving beast, and instantly it sank back into immobility. Having reduced it to helplessness, the monster ate it. The lipless jaws gaped widely, the shapeless hands forced in the head of the animal, the throat muscles expanded hugely, and in less than a minute it had swallowed its living prey as a boa constrictor swallows a monkey. Joyce closed his eyes, feeling weak and nauseated. He didn't open them again until long after he heard the last of the awkward, flapping footsteps. "'Could you see it?' asked Witcher, who was lying so closely behind them that he couldn't observe the monstrous Zoidine. "'What did it do? What was it like?' Joyce told them of the way the creature had fed. "'We are evidently in their provision room,' he concluded.' They keep some of their food alive, it seems. Well, it's a quick death. Tell me more about the way the other animal moved just before it was eaten. There isn't much to tell, said Joyce wearily. It didn't move long after those fangs were sunk into it. But don't you see? There was sudden hope in Witcher's voice. That means that the effect of the poison, which is apparently injected by those fangs, wears off after a time, and in that case— In that case, Joyce interjected, we have only an unknown army of ten-foot Zoidians, the problem of finding a way to the surface of the ground again, and the lack of any kind of weapons to keep us from escaping. We're not quite weaponless, though, the professor whispered back. Over in a corner there's a pile of long slender horns that sprout from the heads of some of these creatures. Evidently the Zoidians cut them out or break them off before eating that particular type of animal they'd be as good as lances if we could get a hold of them joyce said nothing but hope began to beat in his own breast he had noticed a significant happening during the age-long hours in the commissary cave most of the zoidians had entered from the direction of the pit but one had come in through an opening in the opposite side and this one had blinked pale eyes as though dazzled from a bright sunlight and was bearing some large woody tubers that seemed to have been freshly uprooted there was a good chance thought joyce that that opening led to a tunnel up to the world above he drew a deep breath and felt a dim pain in his back caused by the cramping position in which he had lain for so long he could have shouted aloud with the thrill of that discovery this was the first time he had felt his body at all did that mean the effect of the poison was wearing off that it wasn't as lastingly paralyzing to his earthly nerve-centres as to those of Zoidian creatures around him he flexed the muscles of his leg the leg moved a fraction of an inch dorn he called softly i can move a little can you yes witcher answered i've been able to wriggle my fingers for several minutes i think i could walk in an hour or two then pray for that hour or two. It might mean our escape.' Joyce told him of the seldom-used entrance that he thought led to the open air. "'I'm sure it goes to the surface, Dorn. Those woody-looking tubers had been freshly picked.' Three of the two-legged monsters came in just then. They relapsed into lifeless silence. There was a horrible moment as the three paused over them longer than any of the others had—' was it obvious that the effects of the numbing poison was wearing off? Would they be bitten again? Or eaten? The Zoidians finally moved on, hissing and clicking to each other. Eventually the cold-blooded things fed, and dragged lethargically out of the cave in the direction of the pit. With every passing minute, Joyce could feel life pouring back into his numbed body. His cramped muscles were in agony now, a pain that gave him fierce pleasure, At last, risking observation, he lifted his head and then struggled to a sitting position and looked around. No Zoidian was in sight. Evidently, they were too sure of their poisoned glands to post a guard over them. He listened intently and could hear no dragging footsteps. He turned to Witcher, who had followed his example and was sitting up, feebly rubbing his body to restore circulation now's our chance he whispered stand up and walk a little to steady your legs while i go over and get us a couple of those sharp horns then we'll see where that entrance of mine goes he walked to the pile of bones and horns in the corner and selected two of the longest and slimmest of the ivory-like things just as he had rejoined witcher he heard the sound with which he was now so grimly familiar the flapping awkward footsteps wildly he signaled the professor they dropped in their tracks just as the approaching monster stumped into the cave for an instant he dared hope that their movement had gone unobserved but his hope was rudely shattered he heard a sharp hiss heard the zoiding flap toward them at double quick time abandoning all pretense he sprang to his feet just as the thing reached him its fangs gleaming wickedly in the greenish light he leapt to the side going twenty feet or more with the press of his earth muscles against the reduced gravity the creature rushed on toward the professor that game little man crouched and awaited its onslaught but joyce had sprung back again before the two could clash he raised the long horn and plunged it into the smooth purplish back again and again he drove it home as the monster writhed under him it had enormous vitality gashed and dripping it yet struggled on attempting to encircle joyce with its stubby arms once it succeeded and he felt his ribs crack as it contracted its powerful body but a final stroke finished the savage fight he got up and with an incoherent cry to witcher raced toward the opening on which they pinned their hopes of reaching the upper air hissing cries and the thudding of many feet came to them just as they reached the arched mouth of the passage but the cries and the constant pandemonium of the paralyzed animals died behind them as they bounded along the tunnel. They emerged at last into the sunlight they had never expected to see again, beside one of the great lavender trees. They paused an instant to try to get their bearings. This way, panted Joyce as he saw, on a hard-packed path ahead of them one of the trail marks he had blazed down the trail they raced towards their space-shell fortunately they met none of the tremendous animals that infested the jungles and their journey to the clearing in which the shell was lying was accomplished without accident we're safe now gasped witcher as they came in sight of the bare lava patch we can outrun them five feet to their one they burst into the clearing and halted abruptly surrounding the shell stumping curiously about it and touching it with their shapeless hands "'were dozens of the Zordians. "'My God!' groaned Joyce. "'There must be at least a hundred of them. "'We're lost for certain now.' "'They stared with hopeless longing at the vehicle that, "'if only they could reach it, could carry them back to earth. "'Then they turned to each other and clasped hands, without a word. "'The same thought was in the mind of each, "'to rush at the swarming monsters and fight till they were killed. "'There was absolutely no chance of winning through to the shell.' but it was infinitely better to die fighting than be swallowed alive. So engrossed were the Zoidians by the strange thing that had fallen into their province that Joyce and Witcher got within a hundred feet of them before they turned their pale eyes in their direction. Then, bearing their fangs, they streamed toward the Earthmen, just as the pursuing Zoidians entered the clearing from the jungle trail. The two prepared to die as effectively as possible. Each grasped his lance-like horn tightly, the professor mechanically adjusted his glasses more firmly on his nose. With his move, the narrowing circle of the halted. A violent clamor broke out among them. They glared at the two, but made no further step toward them. "'What in the world?' began Witcher bewilderedly. "'Your glasses!' Joyce shouted, gripping his shoulder. "'When you move them, they'll stop. They must be afraid of them somehow. Take them clear off and see what happens.' Witcher removed his spectacles, and swung them in his hand, peering nearsightedly at the crowding Zoidians. Their reaction to his simple move was remarkable. Hisses of consternation came from their lipless mouths. They faced each other uneasily, waving their stubby arms and covering their own eyes as though suddenly afraid they would lose them. Taking advantage of their indecision, Joyce and Witcher walked boldly toward them. They moved aside, forming a reluctant lane, Some of the Zoidians in the rear shoved to close in on them, but the ones in front held them back. It wasn't until the two were nearly through that the lane began to straggle into a threatening circle around them again. The Zoidians were evidently becoming reassured by the fact that Witcher continued to see all right, in spite of the little strange creature's alarming act of removing his eyes. Do it again, breathed Joyce. Perspiration beating his forehead as the giants moved closer, their fangs tentatively bared for the numbing, poison stroke. Witcher popped his glasses on, then jerked them off with a cry, as though he were suffering intensely. Once more the Zoidians faltered and drew back, feeling at their own eyes. Run! cried Joyce, and they raced for the haven of the shell. The Zoidians swarmed after them, snarling and hissing, Barely ahead of the nearest, Joyce and Witcher dove into the open panel. They slammed it closed just as a powerful, stubby arm reached after them. There was a screaming hiss and a cold, cartilaginous lump of flesh dropped to the floor of the shell, half of the monster's hand sheared off between the sharp edge of the door in the metal hull. Joyce threw in the generator switch. With a soft roar, the water motor exploded into action, sending the shell far into the sky. When we return, said Joyce, adding a final thousand miles an hour to their speed before they should fly free of the atmosphere of Zoid, I think we'd better come back at the head of an army, equipped with air-guns and explosive bombs. And with glasses, added the professor, taking off his spectacles and gazing at them as though seeing them for the first time. End of Part 2